Amen. Thank you, worship team, for those songs of praise again, focusing on the character of our God, especially the focus on the love of God. I appreciate that so much. Precious truths about our God. If you have your Bibles, uh, as we continue in worship, please look with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 13, verses uh, 13 through 14. Two chapters this morning, 50-some verses, uh, but we will, by the grace of God, work through it all. Well, we have a church family meeting, so, you know, we just work all the way to a church family meeting. That'd be good. Um, I you know, as I've been studying this passage this week, I tell you, it was a, boy, it's past couple of weeks have been really challenging to study the Word of God. Um, and I was just thinking, oh, you know what would make it easy? If Eric could just get all our members, all our people to just basically read first before you even come here, just read about the nations that we're going to talk about each morning, each morning. And like, for instance, uh, this week is about the nation of Babylon. You know, just find your own Bible encyclopedia, your Bible dictionary. Uh, if you don't have one of those, go to Wikipedia even and go just read up about Babylon and particularly in the time period between uh, that we're talking about in the biblical time periods. And next week is going to be Moab and uh, look at read about all about Moab. You know, that will just uh, save a lot of time because, you know, you think about it. God is giving a series of judgments to the various nations. And when we hear about Babylon, we a little bit more from Babylon because we've all watched Babylon 5. Uh, so we all know about Babylon. Uh, okay, I'm just kidding. But, you know, you may be more familiar. But we, when we get to Moab, we uh, get to some other more obscure nations like uh, the city of Tyre. And, like, we just, like, well, I don't know much about that. But it sure helps because these are real nations just as for you and I today. We, when we hear of Russia, China, Japan, UK, Mexico, Canada, we hear these nations. We understand the significance of these nations for our days. We understand this relationship with our nation in our days, uh, especially if you follow the news. And these nations that God pronounces a judgment are have a very, a very real relationship with the nation of Israel. And to understand their significance, not only in their relationship to Israel, but also just their significance in the world. This gives us so much color when before we come into the text. <laughs> so I feel like half the times I'm just giving you a review of the nations, each of the nations that we're talking about, and barely before I can even get to the text itself. But uh, by the grace of God, um, we'll, we'll learn what God wants us to learn from these sections. Um, this is a lengthy passage that we're going to take tackle today, and we're able to finish it in first service, so I think we'll be able to finish it in second service. I'm going to forgo our normal scripture reading, uh, but I'll read the scriptures within the text. And sometimes I'm just tempted to just kind of read highlights, and I do that on occasions, but I just feel that uh, with uh, these particular just because we may not understand the very details of every verse, reading the passage as a whole gives us the flavor, gives us the big picture, the themes that we'll see. You really can't miss the themes. When you just kind of read through it, you'll hear the overriding themes that we covered last week, the themes of the God's judgment, God's emphasis on each particular nation, but also God's plan and God's sovereignty, God's power, that's meant, that's, uh, and God's plan, promises that he makes, but all also um, his, God's re- the revelation of all this in relationship to the nation of Israel. Uh, so I'll, I'll be reading the text. I felt like uh, I used half the sermon just to read the text and the other half to explain. So that's what it's going to feel like today. All right. As we're all Isaiah 13 to 14, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Not my word, but your word, Father. And I pray that your word, as it is read, 
Even, Father, as I explained, may you cause your word to go forth. May your spirit go before us. Teach us, Father, from your text. Help us to learn to trust you, to not trust in man, not trust in the nations. Father, help us to understand more of who you are, your character, your wrath, your judgment, your anger upon sin, but also your compassion, your mercy, your love, your grace towards your people. So, Lord, we commit uh, this time to you and pray you will be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 21, Jesus, on one occasion, entered the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth on the Sabbath. And as it was custom, because he was a rabbi, known to be a rabbi, he was given the opportunity to read the scriptures that morning and then to expound from it. He he was given the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2. And he read, and I read, read for you what he read that morning. Uh, Luke this is really Luke four eighteen and nineteen. He read, "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." Now, if you kind of compare these two verses with Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, you'll find something kind of interesting, particularly with regards to verse 19 of and verse uh, 61, verse 2, that Jesus only reads half of 61, verse 2. He only reads the part that says, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. The rest of the verse in Isaiah 61, 2 reads, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, by doing so, Jesus shows us a very important uh, principle to understand or a very important facet of prophecy that we need to understand as we look at all prophecy, but particularly Isaiah. And that is, in a very, in, even in the singular verse, one, con- one verse within a phrase of each other, there, are, there can be a prophecy that would have a near fulfillment. That is, that he, Jesus came to proclaim favor and grace at his first coming. But also in that same verse, in the next phrase, there's a far fulfillment. The latter part of the verse is not going to be fulfilled at Jesus' first coming, but at his second coming, the fulfillment of the proclamation of vengeance, of judgment at Jesus' second coming. This is a principle that is true within the scriptures, and it's one of the difficulties, really, of the, of the study, student of God's word when examining all prophecy. One of the difficulties of interpreting prophecy, especially our pastor this morning, is this presence of near and far fulfillment. Near future and far future fulfillment. We ask ourselves, when every time we come to a passage of prophecy, we ask ourselves this question. Does this judgment, does this passage take place in Isaiah's days or shortly after? Or does this judgment take place in a far future day, in the far future day of judgment that called as the day of the Lord? In fact, in some prophecies within Isaiah, like Isaiah 7.14, the virgin will be with child, verses like that have both a near and a far fulfillment. It's both. That it's both a child in Isaiah's day, who would, a virgin woman who would then give birth to a child, and as well as for, uh, foreseeing to the future of Jesus' virgin birth. Oftentimes, even when we see these kind of near and far in the same verse, the near reference, the near, is only a, a partial fulfillment of the prophecy. The part of the prophecy is fulfilled. It's like, obviously, that's fulfilled in the near. But the latter part is not yet because it's 
that complete fulfillment is left for a far future fulfillment. Now, hopefully, I don't know if you've caught all that. Your head might be spinning, uh, but this is what you learn in seminary, okay? This is what you learn. Uh, you probably pay good money if you learn this. You, when you master it, you can be pretty, you'll be a great scholar because it takes a lot of understanding of the scriptures to understand prophecy. It's very difficult. And you'll, you read three different commentaries on Isaiah. You probably sometimes will get three different answers about whether this is near, whether this is far, whether this is near and far. Even when it's near, they disagree on which reference. Is it this king? Is it that king? And when it's far, is it which is it referring? Is it some future king? Is it some Satan himself? And there's all sorts of questions. All this gives us, as we come to Isaiah 13 and 14, uh, I, I, has given me at least uh, a healthy dose of humility. I may stand here as your uh, pastor, your shepherd, and sometimes I think you expect me to know what the scriptures teach. And, and I've done my best to study this passage, at least with the time given me. But I would confess that there are a lot of details of this passage that I still do not understand. I do not, I am not sure. Is it near? Is it far? Is it both? And uh, hopefully, um, it will, as you tackle this, it will challenge us to study, to better understand the various references, to look deeper into God's Word, and, and try to understand God's Word and the details. But hopefully, too, as we go through this text, though we may, I, I kind of, I fear that you will come with me to, with the questions about the details. Is this near? Is this far? Is this, what is, is what is it referred to? And I'm like, um, good question. Let's study that in the, over the next few weeks. Um, but that you won't miss the big picture. When we study the details today, we won't miss the, there's a big picture to this. And the big picture of God's judgment of Babylon for its sin is very clear. And there's going to be a very clear application for us as well. Well, as we learned from last week, and as part of review, Isaiah 13 through 23 encourages God's people to not trust in the nations. Not trust in the surrounding nations around them, its politics, its power, its people. But instead, to trust in the Lord, in the Lord our God. And over, because all these nations that were surrounding Israel oftentimes were its enemies, but many times because of the, when there was a mightier nation, like the Assyrian Empire that was ruling in that day, these nations surrounding them became, were tempted to become their allies in rebellion. And we see that with example with Israel. Israel joins with Aram in the threat of, in, in threat of really rebelling against, uh, Assyria, but then kind of threatening Judah to join with them in their rebellion. The list of nations here that we find are judged, are, are, are judged by God for their sin. And it's a demonstration to Israel that they are not to put their trust in these nations. Do not put your trust in the wicked nations of this world. Instead, put your trust in God. Today we begin with this oracle or burden of Babylon, a judgment upon Babylon, the city-state of Babylon. And God's judgment of Babylon warns them then to don't Put your trust in them, but to trust in Assyria. A simple outline for us today, two chapters, two points. Two prophecies against Babylon that instructs God's people to trust in the Almighty. And that's God's name, God's all-powerful. Uh, and he is one whom the nation of Israel, Judah, though small, though threat under the threat of the surrounding nations, the, the smaller nations, but also always under the threat of the mightiest, the mightier empire, Assyria, needs to learn to trust in the Lord. Let's take a look then at these two prophecies. First of all, chapter 13, we find the, an, the oracle against Babylon. The specific burden that God pronounces, the, the judgment that's coming upon Babylon because of its sin. 
in verses 1 to 16, in this beginning, the oracle against Babylon is something that I call the principle of judgment upon Babylon. And that is that even as God is pronouncing a judgment upon Babylon, it's really, there's a principle here upon a judgment of, of a kind of nations, or the kind of nations that Babylon represents. But let's look at this a little more in depth. First of all, verse 1 of chapter 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So we immediately we know that this oracle, and remember there's ten references of this word oracle or burden. It means, it's, some, it's used to mean the carrying of sin, the weight of sin. And that there is a, this judgment that's coming upon them is because the nation of Babylon is carrying sin. They're, they're, and this is the burden that is upon them. It's often translated oracle, though, in many of our translations. It's a burden, a judgment that's coming because of the sin, and it's regarding Babylon. This is a judgment that's upon Babylon, a city, a state. Now, and this, and this is furthermore in the form of a vision. Some people question, because it's about Babylon at a future time, that how could Isaiah know this? A lot of, and usually liberal scholars will say, no, Isaiah didn't write this. It was one of his followers, one of, and some editor who wrote it up, and then it kind of put Isaiah's name in there to give it, to give it, uh, authority. But Isaiah saw this through a vision from God, and this is all revealed from God to Isaiah, and Isaiah wrote it down for us. But what do we know about Babylon? Babylon is not a name of any city that exists in, it's, it's not in, in, in existence today. Uh, it was the name of a city along the Euphrates River. It was a very major city, eventually became the capital of an empire. It's located between, uh, actually between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Uh, what we call Mesopot- what we would, would have called ancient Mesopotamia, a very fertile region. Uh, much of civil, many ma- uh, ancient civilizations came from there. And sometimes when we think about Babylon, particularly, we must the student, the, a student of the Bible, will know and have to learn all of the major empires, and the Babylonian Empire was one of them. The major empires that were in existence in the biblical days. And this is kind of helpful. If you just kind of write this down you'll or learn it if you haven't learned it, that this is the order kind of of the different empires that have control or have influence over the biblical world in these days. And it begins with the Assyrian Empire. And that's where we find our context of this prophecy. The Assyrian Empire is in control. Assyrian Empire will give way to the Babylonian Empire, of which the Babylonian Empire's capital will be Babylon. The Babylonian Empire will give way to the Median Persian Empire. It's a kind of a dual group of Medes and Persians together having this empire united by uh, one king, Cyrus the Great. That will be followed by the Greek Empire and then lastly concluded with the Roman Empire. In Jesus' day, the Roman Empire ruled the biblical world. And these kind of just help us in understanding the flow of biblical history. Now, keep in mind that at this time when Isaiah is writing this prophecy, Babylon is not an empire yet. The major empire is Assyria. Babylon will not come onto the scene until uh, into the seventh, into the, later in the seventh century. It wouldn't become an empire really until after Isaiah's death, and so it's kind of just interesting to us that though Assyria is the major empire, God gives a prophecy against Babylon, and not just one prophecy, or not just one oracle against Babylon, but apparently two. Here in chapters 13 and 14 is one of them. But later on in chapter 21, we're going to find a second uh, oracle against Babylon in it as well. So we ask ourselves, why the emphasis on Babylon? What's special about Babylon that God would give 
two oracles of the of their judgment. Well, first of all, Babylon at this point was a rising power. It was a very significant city in that day, even in this in the day and time of the Assyrian Empire. It was not only a rising power; it would eventually conquer Assyria, and what's more, it would become a greater threat to Judah than Assyria, because Assyria never takes Judah into captivity. Right? Assyria takes the northern kingdom captivity, but it is Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, that would take Judah, the southern kingdom, into captivity under uh, under the Babylonian kings. What's more, even in this day, Babylon is because is a center of religious worship of the idol Marduk. Marduk. Marduk was probably the major god in that region that day. Sometimes called Bel Bel Marduk, but he was the major god, and there was the his major temple. And so Babylon became the center, basically, of the most common, predominant religion in the Mesopotamian region in that period. So it was a, it was a significant city. But secondly, why is emphasis on Babylon? Because Babylon biblically represented the world in rebellious opposition against God. Babylon is a, is a figure of speech, a metaphor even in the Bible for the world in opposition to God. And to see this, we go back to passages like in Genesis 11. Actually, the first time we find Babel mentioned is in Genesis 10, where we see that it was founded by a man named Nimrod, a mighty warrior. But in Genesis 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, how it actually, how the city and tower actually takes its kind of name, that after the flood, the universal flood, God commanded Noah and his sons to basically populate the earth, be fruitful, multiply, spread out throughout the earth, fill their world. And it was a time when the whole world spoke the same language. They all spoke one language. And so God allowed them and just encouraged them and commanded them to spread out. But instead of spreading out, they decided to stop in a certain area to build a city and a tower, a tower that would reach to heaven so that they could make a name for themselves. And this was an act of rebellion, an act of pride. For they were disobedient to God. Instead of spreading out, they decided to settle in one particular area, in one location. Instead of seeking God's glory, they sought their own glory. They wanted to make a name for themselves. Instead of following God's way to approach him, to worship him, they made their own way by building a a tower that would reach up to, to the heavens. And God saw their sin for what it was. He saw what they were about, and he came down, as we read in Genesis 11, how he confused their language. He caused them to all end up speaking different languages, and he scattered them over the face of the earth. And that really began all the various nations of the world. That place where that city was built and that tower was was built to reach to heaven was called Babel. Named after Babel, the, the tongue, the sound of the, the different, the, the utterances of their speech, and eventually became known as Babylon. You see, even in Genesis 11, it was a place where the world together stood up in rebellion against God's ways. Fast forward to Revelation 17 and 18. There, you, when you read Revelation 17 and 18, you will find the word Babylon, the name Babylon mentioned again. And there in this, the, this is described a future judgment upon Babylon. But at that time, Babylon is not only a city, but it's a, it's becomes known as a, a center of the world's religious and economic systems. It le- and this religious and economic system that is, that it, Babylon is uh, known for leads the world 
to idolatry against God. In fact, she is called there the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So Babylon, in effect, becomes a metaphor. In the Bible, it becomes a metaphor for the world in defiance of God. One commentator has put it really, and I like this, that there are essentially two cities in the world. There's really two cities that you belong to. You either belong to the city of Babylon or you belong to the city of God. And there's a city of God references in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. That is that there's the there's one city, the kind of city you live in where you basically stand in rebellion against God. Or there's the city of God that we all pursue by faith. Where we desire to worship God, to submit to God, to follow God. That's the city of God and the city of Babylon. But the, and so God's pronouncement of judgment, this principle of God's judgment upon Babylon, really is, in a further, uh, in a, in a further uh, sense, is a judgment upon all the nations of the earth. It's a, a judgment upon all the nations that would rise up against the knowledge of God, that oppose God, that, re, that re, refuse to submit to God's ways. A judgment that, according to Revelation, will be fulfilled in the far future when Christ returns. Right now, many nations of the earth do not submit to Christ, do not submit to God. But one day, when Christ returns, they will all be judged. They will all submit. And so in verses 2 to 16, then, all this to say, this principle that we see, we find in verses 2 to 16. This principle of judgment upon Babylon is not just, is not just upon a city of Babylon. It is. But there's a more universal sense of judgment. Even the wording throughout this passage seems to be of a universal judgment rather than really a judgment just upon one nation, Babylon. Look at verses 2 to 5 with me. And let's, let's kind of start reading through this. Verse 2 to 5. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of a many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. God here is extending a call to his warriors. He's calling his warriors to come and execute his anger, his wrath, his judgment. And he is coming. It's not just his warriors are coming, but it says the Lord and his instruments are coming from a far country. God is coming, the Lord himself. And this is why there's a sense of a far future reference here. In fact, the word that says to, in the end of verse 5, where it says destroy the whole land, that word land is a word that also can, is commonly translated earth. So you could translate it as earth as well. So these verses 2 to 5, this call for enemies, uh, to, for God's warriors to come to judge Babylon, is a, not only a, will be applicable in a sense to Babylon, the empire, the city empire, but also to all the world as we see this, God and his instruments of need coming to destroy the whole world land. And if that's not clear, we see it confirmed in the next few verses, 6 through 16, by this reference throughout to this mention of a day, the day of the Lord, a far future, which is a reference to the future judgment of Christ upon the world. Let's look at this verse 6 through 16, of this universal judgment that's coming. 
Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fear of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. And it will be that like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, they will each turn to his own people and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. The little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Throughout this passage, in, in these, these verses, we see three times the reference to the future day of the Lord. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 13. And we've seen this, this reference already earlier in Isaiah. And sometimes it does refer to a, a local kind of day of judgment, thank God. But more often than not, in the Old Testament scriptures, and particularly prophecy, when we find this phrase, the day of the Lord, it is referring to the future day of judgment when the Lord comes to judge all the earth. Furthermore, we see this confirmed by several phrases in this passage that emphasize the universal judgment. Verse 7 says, all hands will fall limb. Every man's heart will fail. Verse 11 says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Verse 12 talks about how mankind will be scarcer than gold. Not just Babylonians, but mankind. Verse 13, there's a universal scope in that the heavens and the earth will be shaken at this moment of judgment. Verse 14, each Each will turn to his own people and flee to his own land. Not just go back to Babylon, but from the battlefield, they will flee back to their own people and flee back to their own land. There's a a reference of many different nations, many different lands. And confirming what's, in a a very final sense, this universal far fulfillment is that our own Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will quote verse 10 in both Matthew 24, 29, as well as Mark 13, 24, describing his second coming when he would return. So then, God's oracle of judgment upon Babylon, as we see here, even though it's spoken to Babylon, it's a judgment upon Babylon, the city and the nation, it is, goes beyond it to all nations, to the world that would rise up in opposition to God. Now, we see this general principle of the judgment of Babylon in these verses, in verses 17 to 22, God then moves to the particulars of judgment upon Babylon, to the specific details of God's judgment upon the specific nation of Babylon. We see this in verses 17 to 22. Let's read. God says, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, 
will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Nor will the Arab pitch his tent there. Nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there. And their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches also will live there. And shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers. And jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her faithful time also will come soon. And her days will not be prolonged. Here in particular in verse 17, we see one of the more specific prophecies, one of the many specific prophecies in Isaiah that come to be fulfilled, that actually came to be fulfilled in our history, in our history. And that is, in verse 17, that God promises to use the Medes, the people of Media, to judge Babylon. Now, the, who are these Medes? Now, Babylon, you remember, were located in what we call modern-day Iraq. The Medes are people that came from, they were situated in what we call modern-day Iran. Kind of, and, and so they were to the east of Babylon. Now, these Medes were known for their, their fierceness in their battle. And in 539 B.C., uh, Cyrus the Great, he was a actually a Persian king, but through, uh, through marriage and relationships, he joined with uh, the, the, the empire of the Medes, and he led the Persians and Medes to conquer Babylon, thus ending the Babylonian empire. That was in 539 B.C. And this is, pretty, this is very fascinating because here God is prophesying about how he will use the Medes to destroy Babylon, to conquer Babylon, before Babylon is even an empire. They're not even an empire yet. He's prophesying it in about 715 to 701 BC. But it's something that's going to happen nearly 200 years later. By the way, this fulfillment is recorded for us in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Now, we see here that a, a near fulfillment. A, a God does use the means to judge Babylon. But in the next few verses of this section, the particular judgment, there seems to be almost an immediate leap to the far future. Because it says here that the destruction of Babylon will be complete. And as far as we can tell from Daniel, as well as uh, other records, well, other historical records that we have today, Babylon was not completely destroyed by the Medes and Persians. It continued to be a major city and throughout for several more centuries. Now today, modern, today, if you go to Babylon, where Babylon would be, it is essentially ruins. There's a city that's nearby, I think about 50 miles nearby or so. Uh, but it is not in Babylon proper, where the ruins, it's all simply ruins there. There is no city of Babylon. And although Babylon is in ruins, and perhaps some point out that, the, yes, that is a fulfillment of this passage. That is, that Babylon is no longer inhabited. But when I look to Revelation 17, 18, I see this mention of Babylon again being a center of the religious and economic. I could take that figuratively there as being just a, a figurative, but I prefer to take it as literal. And that is that I believe that, you don't have to, we can't be dogmatic about this, but I believe that it is likely that Babylon will one day be rebuilt. That it's one day going to be restored as a city. It's going to be a city that is, has economic power, as a center of religious worship which will then be in opposition to God. And it is that point, according to Revelation 17, 18, that Christ returns, will destroy Babylon once and for all. Thus fulfilling our prophecy here. And so we see 
that God promises to judge Babylon. Not only Babylon in history, the, that it's in its opposition to God as a nation that's opposition, but God promised to judge all nations that reflect the, the heart of Babylon, the principle of Babylon. Nations that would deny the God's right to rule, but claim that they have a, that the rulers of those nations say that they are, have the right to rule, that they are the ones who are the final judge of what is right and what is wrong. God will judge all nations, even if it's this nation that would dare to say that we have the right to rule and not God. Now, studying through these chapters, we must keep in mind, too, of, of a significant principle that these judgments were not written for the nations that, that, that are spoken of. That these nations, this, this oracle was not written for Babylon to read. Otherwise, it would have been written in uh, Babylonian language, I think. Uh, I think it's Akkadian or something like that. Uh, but the Babylonian language. But it's written in Hebrew for the Jewish people to read. And so, this, these, all, these, all these oracles are really for the Jewish people, the people of Judah, the people of Israel to understand. There's a lesson for them to learn. And chapter 14 reveals that for us. It's one of those evidences for this, why we say this. It confirms for us that we see us, when we see the second prophecy from God concerning Babylon, and that is a taunt against Babylon. Here in chapter 14, we essentially see a prophecy from God saying this is to Israel, saying this is what you're going to taunt the king of Babylon about when I destroy him. And that's kind of the, this is like a fulfillment. This is what you're going to say when I judged Babylon. So this is the taunt. Uh, and he's addressing the people of God. Now the, the bulk of this chapter is this, is this taunt. We'll talk about what that is in a little bit, the details of that. But the first few chapter, the first few verses of chapter 14 gives us a setting. And I believe if you, when you instruct, when we're interpreting 13 through 14, that these four verses, really the first two verses of chapter 14, really are the crux upon which this whole passage is interpreted in. That if you miss these two verses, you really miss the whole passage. Because everything else around this passage is all about judgment, judgment, judgment. But here in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14 is a revelation of God's love, compassion, and choice of the people of Israel. And I call this the, we see this the choice of the people of Israel. So it's important for us to work through, work through this and examine this in a little more detail. We read verses 1 through 4 then, what God says. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance to the, in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants. And they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say... And so, here's this taunt. Verse 1, though, reminds, reveals to us that what we see here, even in all this judgment, even all this wrath, this indignation of God that we're, that's going to be manifest about Babylon, God intersects with his compassion. He shines upon the people of God with the revelation of his compassion and choice and grace and love. Now, it's kind of hard to know the exact historical details of this, but later on in chapter, in verse, in 1428, we're going to see a historical reference 
that the, of with, for the oracle of Philistia of in the year that King Ahaz died. So presumably, these were, this section probably was given a little bit before the year the King Ahaz died. And what's significant about the year the King Ahaz died is that shortly after King Ahaz dies, Assyria comes in and takes the northern kingdom into captivity. It will take, and then, then many years later, Babylon will take the southern kingdom into captivity. And so Assyria will come in as a major threat. And so before, this, so this prophecy then is, occurs before the northern or the southern kingdom is taken to captivity. They're not even in captivity yet. They've, they received prophecy from Isaiah that says, God's going to judge you because you didn't, particularly King Ahaz, because you didn't trust my, prom, my, my promise to you. I'm going to bring, cause Assyria to judge you. And then I'm going to bring a greater judgment, a greater destruction from, uh, from Babylon later on. We'll see that in the later in Isaiah. But even before that takes place, here in these verses, God says, I'm going to have compassion on you. I'm going to have a love for you. I'm not going to forget you. I will remember you because I love you, because I've chosen you. What we find here really is a revelation of the doctrine of divine election. A divine election that really is a reflection. When you think about divine election, you say, oh, man, I don't like divine election. Divine election is a, is a part of God's love that God chooses to love. You know, you know, a lot of times we love, oh, because oh, someone's great. That's why I love them. I love them because I love my daughter because oh, she's so cute. I love, oh, I love my wife because, oh, she just cooks the best meals. We have reasons for all we love, conditional love. But God doesn't love us in that way. God loves unconditionally before we were ever in his even his, his, he chose to love us even though we didn't deserve to be loved. We were sinners. Even before we existed, God chose us in eternity past. And God chose the nation of Israel even from eternity past. God chose particularly the nation of Israel in the point of history, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to be his chosen nation, to be his people, his representatives on earth who would then be a blessing to the nations of the world. And despite Israel's continued sin, we, come, we see it time and time throughout the Old Testament. And he would discipline them. He would bring judgment to them. I think it's the cycle of the judges. God would always, once again, remember them. He would choose them again. And then he, they would come back to him. And they would then fall into sin. He'd judge, discipline them. And he would then choose them again. And he would choose them again, time and time again, because God had chosen and God had put his love upon them. In fact, this prophecy that we'll find of when God remember when when God has compassion upon Israel and He chooses them again is a prophecy of His that He would return them back to the land. This would be fulfilled in the near future, well, in the kind of further near future, in the days of Cyrus the Great. After long, when Assyria, after Assyria takes Israel to captivity, after Babylon takes Judah into captivity in 586 BC. In about five, five, 520 B.C. or so, Cyrus will make the decree so that all of, all the, who, of, of Israel who wishes to go back to the land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their worship, to rebuild the city, can do so. They're brought back through Cyrus the Great, which whom we'll see, I think, later in Isaiah, I believe in Isaiah 30-something. 
But there's a prophecy of Cyrus and even. And that is all because of not Cyrus, but because of God. And think about it. God's choice of Israel is just a, a beautiful illustration of his love. More recently in our human history, you think about it. After AD 70, when Rome, under General Titus, destroyed Jerusalem, Israel as a nation ceased to be, right? There was no nation of Israel after AD 70. Until when? 1948, I was told by one of our historians afterwards. After World War II, when the nation of Israel was created so that all these Jewish people that were basically murdered by millions during the Holocaust had a land to go back to live and dwell in. Created them, yes, by man, but as instruments of God because God chose them. And if Israel continues in disobedience, God may send them out of the land again. But every time, God will love them, God will have compassion upon them, and God will return them to the land because that is God's love for them. God, what an, and this is an encouragement for us. It's an encouragement to us because to think that God's love in choosing Israel is the very same love in which he chose you. It's the same kind of love when he chose you from eternity past for salvation. He chose you, he elected you from eternity past for salvation. And in history, in your lifetime, he called you to himself. And then he justified you when you responded to the the gospel call. And those who he's justified, he promises to glorify because of God's choice of you. He won't ever forsake you because you're sinning. You know, we wonder, oh, can, there are some people, that Christians who believe that you can lose your salvation. No, that's false. That's wrong. God's not that impotent. He's not powerless to, that you would lose your salvation. God has chosen you, and he will keep choosing you again, even if you fall away and forsake God for a period of time. And I may you never find that to be the case. But as you know, sometimes sin becomes so elusive, so attractive that we get caught up. We think that this sin is my way to release. It's my, my way to, uh, to just finding the happiness that I want. God will discipline you. God will even allow you to experience the consequences of sin. But if you belong to God, if God loves you, his love for you will never change. It will be the same. He will still bring, he will always bring you back to himself. To the very end, he will keep choosing you, not because you're worthy, but because of his compassion and love. Though, as we come back to the text, though this promise of restoration for Israel would be fulfilled in the return decreed by Cyrus, I would, and just as we look at this text, it is likely here that there's a future fulfillment that will take place. When Christ returns and finally destroys Babylon once and for all, he's going to bring all his Jewish people back to Jerusalem. He's going to bring them all back. And in that day, the people of God then will take up a taunt against the king of Babylon. In the rest of this passage, verses 4 to 23, we see the specific taunt of the king of Babylon. Now, the taunt here, according to scholars, is, the, is actually like a song. It's a poem. It's a beautiful poem. It's considered uh, a beautiful poem. In the, and it's in the form of a funeral dirge. And we don't have that today too often. But funeral dirge in those days was basically a song that someone sang at someone's funeral about the deceased. 
something we'd sing well, kind of like our eulogy. We'd say something well about someone, but there was a song that would be sung about the person who was, who was, who was uh, deceased. But here, it's, this song is sung of the king of Babylon, but instead of speaking well of the king of Babylon, it's sort of a taunt. It's sort of a mockery, uh, sort of a, uh, a judgment, even another judgment or, or a condemnation of the king of Babylon. There's a sort of movement here in these verses from 4 to 23. It begins with the setting of earth. Then it will go down to Sheol. That is the Old Testament place of the dead, where the dead dwelt. Verse 9 to 11. Then it will go to the heights of heaven in verses 12 to 15. And then back to the earth, the setting of the earth in verse 16 to 21. Uh, let's just go through these real quickly. In verses 4 to 8, we find the, how the whole earth is going to rejoice over the death of the king of Babylon. We read how the oppressor, this is the taunt of Israel upon the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has ceased, how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. And some of the details here are, you wonder, is that for which nation does that refer to, or that nation? But in general, you can see this, the big picture here, that the whole earth is rejoicing over the death and decease of the king of Babylon. That he was once known for his fierce anger and fury upon the nations in which he, which he, uh, executed upon the nations but now the whole earth the whole earth is at rest and is quiet and so people are breaking into shouts of joy then in verse 9 11 we find that not only the people on earth are going to rejoice but in a sense the people in sheol are going to rejoice the people the, the dead will rejoice as well over the king's death the once arrogant king is humbled by death like all others before him and we see this in verses 9 through 11 sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. And this is sort of a little bit given a little sarcasm, a little tongue-in-cheek. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. And kind of uh, there's a picture here, just a beautiful picture of that even the dead, the, the mighty kings of old, they will be, they, their spirits will come and, and want to see the king of Babylon enter into Sheol to the place of death. And they're going to simply say, ha you died too, just like us. You're going to lie in maggots and worms, just like us. You've been brought low, just like us. And that's just a great reminder for all of us. No matter how mighty, how low you may be in this world, Apart from Jesus Christ, we will all end up in the grave. So that's a humbling thing. Death meets us all. Now, I would add at this point, it's a good fitting time to say that up to this point, we have not identified the king of Babylon. And uh, you're probably like, oh, who's the king of Babylon? Who's this talking about? And, and I think that's, I mean, it was, tell you the truth, it was kind of fun trying to, trying to figure it out. And I would have to tell you, uh, I have not figured it out. Okay. Um, 
there are various uh, scholars give many different potential answers. Whether it's King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, those are two Babylonian kings. Whether it's the Antichrist in the future. Whether it's Sennacherib and the Assyrian king. But the Assyrian kings in those days were always also crowned the king of Babylon. And then there was Satan himself, whom is implied in verse 12 to 4. So it's, and there's some others as well who could be mentioned, but these are some of the major ones. Most likely is a combination of all. Just like Babylon is a, is a, in a sense, a figure for all the United Nations, the nations that are in opposition to God. Perhaps the king of Babylon here uh, is a representation of all the kings of Babylon. I kind of am leaning towards Belshazzar, but... Don't quote me on that, and don't don't write, you know. But uh, Belshazzar, along being with a as a near fulfillment, with a far fulfillment in the Antichrist, who is energized by Satan. Okay, so, but that's where I lead at. I'll change my mind next week, probably. <laughs> Just because of the, the the Revelation seventeen to eight seems to be an emphasis that there is going to be another leader, another king of Babylon that's going to be destroyed. It's going to be brought low. Anyways. Whatever you take, and then I just kind of challenge you to study it for yourself, know that the king of Babylon is going to be judged by God. He's going to be brought down, brought low. Now, what's important is why he's brought down low. And the next few verses reveals that to us. In verse 12 to 15, it shows the arrogance of the king. It's the pride of the king. That's what God hates most. God is, God is opposed to many things, but in the scriptures, very clearly repeated over time and time again, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. His hand is against those who are prideful, who would lift themselves up in arrogance and conceit to think that they are better or equal with God. Look at verse 12 to 15. We mentioned this last week, but I want to read it again. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now, there are a good number of scholars that believe that verses 12 to 14 here also describe the fall of Satan, who was ultimately behind the king of Babylon. We see that this, this king of Babylon basically once was prideful. He wanted to lift himself up to be like God. In fact, Jesus uses this similar terminology of how, how you have fallen from heaven of Satan in Luke 10, verse 18. When we look at it furthermore, when we look at Ezekiel 28, verse 12 through 19, we see a similar description of Satan's fall. But notice here, and I do believe, I personally do believe this is referring to the king of Babylon who is, but behind the king of Babylon is Satan at work. Notice the willfulness of Satan here. Five times he says, I will, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise, I will sit, I will ascend, I will make myself like the Most High. See, many times, that's not only what Satan does, but when he energizes and works behind the rules of our world, that's what some of our world is do. Some of the crazy rulers of our world just want to make themselves into God. Now, very few people nowadays will say that they are actually God on earth. But they will act like they're God. They're the final authority. They're the authority and the dictators of this world. You see, the arrogance of the proud says, I will. But the meekness of the humble says, not will, not my will, but thine. And in verse 16 to 21, we move on without, can't give you, I'd love to speak more detail there, but we must move on. We see how the taunt of the king of Babylon returns to earth. 
where the king now is left without a burial. Uh, you know, in kings and mighty kings, mighty rulers, when you, when you go to the graveside, you see a really big tomb, you know, oh, that's probably somebody important, right? And you see a big monument, and you call it, oh, you know, that's this Washington monument. Oh, who's that? You know, what's that represent? You know, Lincoln, Jefferson Memorial? What's that about? That guy must be important in there. Who knows? Uh, usually that's true, right? And it's true of kings. But this king, according to the taunt and the is going to be left without a burial. Just read these quickly. Read this to us. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain who are pierced with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. You will not be united with them in burial because you have ruined your country. You have slain your people. May the offspring of, over, of evildoers not be mentioned forever. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. And so we just see there that in a, probably in a, seems like a human, referring again to the, the human king of Babylon, is going to be left without a tomb. It's going to be left dead on the battlefield. And so that taunt ends then with a final word from the Lord himself, demonstrating God's sovereign power. That no one can resist the judgment of God. Look at verse 22, 23. Satan says, the king of Babylon says, I will, but God is the one who says, I will. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the hedgehog and swamps of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, God, when he says, I will, he actually does. Whereas man, when he says, I will, We cannot always promise that we will. But God's sovereignty, God's power to bring about the destruction of Babylon is is pictured as sweeping it with a broom. Like dust. You know, when you sweep the dust, I'm always sweeping after my cat or my wife's sweeping too. The little dust, the litter of our cat, it's just like that, how God sweeps away Babylon, the mighty empire, but just with a broom, swipes it away. That is God's power, God's sovereignty to judge the king of Babylon. Now, this ends the taunt of Babylon, but not the oracle of Babylon. It actually continues in verse 24 to 27. But unexpectedly and surprisingly, but very importantly, it's not about the destruction of Babylon, but it's about the destruction of Assyria. This is not a new oracle. This is a continuation of this oracle. And we looked at this, this, this passage last week. But now I want to examine it in its context, the context of this oracle against Babylon. We read again these words. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break, not Babylon, but notice, what does it say? To break Assyria in my land. And I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? See, the Lord is sovereign and almighty. Nothing can thwart the fulfillment of his plans, whether it is plans to judge or plans to bless. We had already seen and God had already made known in chapter 10, verse 12 and following, of his promise to judge Assyria. That it was the the mighty nation in in rule in that day. And so 
And yet, from this standpoint, from Isaiah's standpoint, this fulfillment was still in the far future. Assyria was not judged yet. But why does he speak of the Assyrian judgment now in this midst or at the end of a prediction, of a prophecy of the destruction of Babylon? Here's the point. I want to write it down because it's just to catch it. Though still in the near future, that is the, from Isaiah's standpoint, it's, that is, the destruction of Assyria, its fulfillment would serve and as encouragement to God's people to trust him for the fulfillment of God's judgment of Babylon. See, Babylon is eventually going to come on the scene. And eventually, it is going to take over and, and take over Judah and going to take many of the people into captivity. And they will, as they go into captivity, they will take with them the scriptures, the scripture of Isaiah. And when they're in captivity, they will, they may wonder, they may be tempted to think, God has forgotten us. God has forsaken us. How could he allow us to be defeated? Isn't God for us? Maybe he's finally done for us. But then they'll read Isaiah 61 and they're going to see this promise of the destruction of Babylon. And they're going to see the destruction of Babylon and say, and sometimes when we see promise in God's words, we kind of wonder, is that really going to happen? How do we know it's going to happen? Is it really going to happen? Well, it happens because it will happen because hasn't God already fulfilled some promises? And by the time of Babylon's destruction, God will already have judged Assyria as well. And so, knowing then that since God judged Assyria exactly as He did as He promised, He will then also fulfill His promise to judge Babylon. Now, this and this is going to be extreme. Comfort to the people of Judah in the midst of that, of the, in the midst of captivity. But this basic tr- principle is true for us today. For you and me, we might come across the promises of God, and we may doubt God's ability to to keep His promises. Sometimes we doubt is God able to save us. We need to only remember the many ways that He has fulfilled His promise to us. God. In Isaiah alone has already fulfilled so many of these prophecies in Jesus Christ, has he not? Consider this. All prophecies, all fulfilled already in Christ. God has given us his son, Isaiah 9.6, born of a virgin, 7.14, from the root of Jesse, 11.10, empowered by the Spirit, 11.2, who was despised and forsaken by men, 53.3, Pierced for our transgressions, 53.5. Crushed for our iniquities, having poured out himself to death, 53.12. To bear all our sins and intercede for transgressors, 53.6 and 12. Has this not all been fulfilled in Christ? Has we not see it recorded for us in history, in the, in the biblical records, by the, four, the, the testimonies of the four gospel witnesses? Do we not see its impact upon the ch- early church in Acts? Do we not see its impact upon our world throughout history of this gospel that though, despite man's greatest efforts to, to put down, continues to be proclaimed? This truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the, all these prophets in just Isaiah alone. These were just kind of things that off the top of my head, as I was thinking through it, yeah, those are some obvious ones that have already been fulfilled. If God has fulfilled these already in Jesus Christ, then how will he not also fulfill his promises to bring us to final salvation? God has already given us his son. How will he not with him give us all things? God is able to fulfill his promises. And he 
adds this end here to the judgment of Syria, so to encourage the people of Israel, the people of Judah, to know that God will finish his will fulfill his judgment upon Babylon as well. And we ask ourselves, and just concluding, what lesson, what lesson did God want Judah to learn from this oracle against Babylon? It's the same lesson that we began with. And that is, God wants his people to trust in him. To trust in him for salvation. To trust their God for salvation. Because God has chosen them, he will not forsake them. Now, even though they experience the consequences of sin, God's judgment of sin, to know that God is one, the one whom they need to continually turn to, because he will not forsake them. Now, time does not allow for a detailed exposition of the, the last few verses, the last five verses of 14, 28 to 32. But I want to make mention of it. I'm not going to cover it in the next message, but I'm just going to briefly mention it. And that's a, it's a second oracle. It's an oracle against Philistia, another one of the neighboring nations who sought an alliance with Judah. But verse 32 describes that when the Philistines send messengers to seek an alliance with Judah, reveals the answer that Israel is to give to the Philistines. And the simple answer is this. How then, or we'll read verse 32, how then will one answer the messengers of the nation? That the Lord has founded Zion, and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it. God's people will remember that the Lord is the one who created Jerusalem. He created, and he is the one who dwells there in the temple that is in the center of Jerusalem. He is the one who represents the people. He is the one who protects Jerusalem, and he, and they, the people of God, will seek refuge in him, in him, in the Lord. And so their answer essentially is, we will trust the Lord. And that should be our answer. Whatever difficulties, whether you're going through doubt about your salvation, whether you're wondering, maybe going through difficult times even in life, you can always trust that God continues to love you. He knows what you're going through, and he will deliver you, maybe in this life, Maybe not, but he will deliver you for sure, and he will deliver you in the life to come because of your faith in Jesus Christ, but really because of his love for you, his choice of you, and that's the lesson we take away this day. Let's keep trusting God for our salvation. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Babylon. Thank you for this oracle against Babylon, and Lord, we see the judgment. We see your wrath. Father, we thank you that in the, in the contrast of your wrath and anger, we see how bright your compassion and love shines. Thank you, Father, for your divine election, not only of your people, Israel, but, your, but, our, but us today, your church. Thank you, Lord, how you choose us for salvation. In fact, we would, none of us would be saved if you did not choose us. We thank you for this promise. We thank you for your love. And we pray that we would never forget your compassionate love towards your people. That we would not follow after the city of Babylon. But that we would continue to pursue to dwell in the city of God. And though, Lord, we may not in this world reach the city of God here. But, Father, we know that we will have it fulfilled one day when Christ returns. We know that he will come. And he will judge Babylon. He will judge all the nations of the earth. He will establish his kingdom, a kingdom of rest for all his people, a nation that, a kingdom that we will be 
dwell in for eternity for those who believe in Christ. Father, if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus Christ as their saving Lord, cause them to, remember, to recognize that just as you have fulfilled your promise to judge Babylon and judge Assyria, Lord, you will judge all who stand in opposition to you. Lord, cause a, a conviction of sin, a repentance of heart, a response of faith, that they might be saved today by believing in Jesus Christ, by turning to Christ who died on the cross and rose from the grave for the forgiveness of their sins. And Lord, for all of us who remain, who have already believed in Christ, help us to continue to keep trusting you, Lord. Lord, we don't just trust you for salvation and then then depend upon ourselves for the rest of our life. Help us to keep depending upon you for every circumstance, every situation that we face in this world that we need deliverance from. To know that for you are a God who keeps loving, who is compassionate, who keeps choosing your people. Thank you, Father, for this truth, these promises. We ask that you you glorify yourself as we respond in trust of you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.